The Marvel Handbook, Episode A, 6, Ares, God of War, Ariel, Archon, and Alpha Centurions. Hello, this is Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, here to talk about the Alpha Centaurians. This is one of the many tertiary alien species that wasn't notable enough to get a full-page entry in this issue. In fact, the Alpha Centaurians only get a quarter of a page, but I wanted to discuss them because I really like the story in which they debuted, which was Submariner issue 17 and 18. Physically, the Alpha Centaurians are humanoid with gray, scaly skin. Their heads, they have these kind of skin flaps or jowls coming from their nostrils around their ears, and they have very pointed ears. To me, they kind of look like seals, except with the very pronounced ears. They are an amphibious aquatic species, their homeworld surface is covered by water, and they live in kind of feudal caste cultures. Despite this, they have mastered interstellar travel, which is a good thing because their planet, Alpha Centauri, was dying. The water was drying out, and they needed to re-water, re-wetten the planet? I don't know. To do this, they flew to Earth where they were going to use their advanced technology to siphon the water from Earth's oceans and deposit it back in Alpha Centauri, thereby saving their world while dooming ours. What stopped this nefarious plot from coming to be was the hubris of the Alpha Centaurian's chieftain, Dinor, who first appears calling himself Dinor the Stalker. He scouts the oceans of Earth where he discovers Namor the Submariner and Triton the Inhuman. He's fascinated that these two beings have deviated from their normal species traits to breathe on land and in water, and he wants to study them. So, after a big fight, Dinor has captured Namor and Triton, and he is going to make them watch the destruction of their world before he subjects them to all sorts of tests and dissections to figure out what's up with their strange physiology. The boys don't like that. Namor and Triton bust out and reverse the master weapon that siphons the water from Earth. It now sucks the last of the water from Alpha Centauri, destroying that world. What I have always loved is how the Alpha Centaurians react to this. They don't fly into an anguished rage and murder Namor and Triton. They don't declare war on Earth. Instead, they blame their leader, Dinor. They're like, you arrogant fool, we had won. You didn't have to bring these guys on our ship. We could have taken their water and left. But it was Dinor's hubris and his ambition that overreached and brought about their destruction. So the Alpha Centaurians turn on him, and Namor and Triton are sent back to Earth as the aliens turn on their master 
Master and kill him. I thought that was hilarious. This story from Submariner is written by Roy Thomas and drawn by Maurice Severin. I have always liked it, in part because it made me a fan of Triton for the first time. Until a couple of years ago, Triton was really my least favorite of the Inhumans' royal family. I just didn't find him that interesting and didn't really care for how Jack Kirby drew him. Once Triton started appearing in the Submariner comic, though, I saw how John Buscema and Maurice Severin drew him and how he interacted with Namor, and I liked him a whole lot more. Now he is one of my favorites of the Inhuman royal family. And the way he and Namor worked together to free themselves and to destroy this whole Alpha Centaurian culture was crazy and kind of awesome. So... Yeah, the Alpha Centaurians are not the most memorable alien race in the Marvel Universe, but I like them because of how quickly and practically they turn on their leader, whose personal ambition totally screwed them over. And also because the story made me a bigger fan of the character Triton in his complicated camaraderie with the Submariner. Thief! I know you're in there! Ah, crud. There you are! Did you think you could hide from me forever, little brother? Oh, hey there, brother. What brings you to New York? Hercules' brother? Which brother are you? Please be one of the nice ones. I am Ares, Prince of War, Harbinger of Destruction, Bringer of Pain. So, kind of not nice. Go away, Aries! Okay. Victor, you want to go ahead and start? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, what is Megasheen? What is that about? Well, Megasheen is a podcast for queer people of color. My queer, queer people of color, I can't even say it. <laughs> okay. But yeah, start over. <laughs> All right. All right. What is Megasheen? Well, Megasheen is a queer podcast featuring queer people of color talking about geeky and queer things. A lot of queer in there. Uh, yeah, we... we double up on the gate because we like it um and i'm nick and i'm victor and we can talk about anything from the phoenix saga to dating app to porn stars to video games you know anything and everything right you can catch us we're on itunes soundcloud google play stitcher and spotify episodes are bi-weekly so yeah check us out listen rate us like us and follow us that's right i don't know if there's a lot of crossover between our two audiences so why don't you go a little bit more into who you are as individuals? Well, I'll start. I'm Nick, and I've come from the Marvel mainly from the cartoons and the video games. So I grew up watching X-Men Animated Universe, going on through uh, watching a little bit of the X-Men Evolution. I didn't much really get into Wolverine and the X-Men because uh, I kind of felt like that show was trash. That's where I come in from. And what about you, Victor? Well, I've been a uh... A long time comic book fan since I was a kid. Marvel hit me through Spider Man Amazing Friends. From there, I just start, you know, saving my little money and buying comics at the, you know, local grocery store and really getting into the stories. My first Marvel comic was X Men 248. I was kind of lost because there a lot of things happened. X Men was were supposedly dead at that time. We were introduced to some different characters that later, as I went 
back to back issues, kind of got a better you know, idea of them. So, you know, I've been in it for a long time since I was 13 and been in it ever since. Do either of you have previous experience with the official handbook in the Marvel Universe or is this sort of a new thing for y'all? Oh, I do. That was something I used to collect. In fact, I remember there was a nine, like a one nine hundred number or something. It was a game that you had to play with Spider-Man where you can win the updated versions. And I did that and my mom killed me because I was I, that was a big phone bill. But uh, <laughs> a whole bunch of those and you can now you can they were like detachable like files almost. You can put them like in a oh, okay. in a binder. You had the loosely so, ones yeah. then the ones with the they were uh, mostly white backgrounds and there was a turnaround of the character. Yeah. Okay. Master edition. Yeah. I know the one. Yeah. I bought them the old way, but then when the newer ways were in the nineties, I got those. And then they updated it again, and I also got the paperback, not paperback, but the graphic novel versions of those books as well. Cool. Yeah. It's funny. Just on Twitter the other day, somebody was asking whoever played those phone games, and now I know somebody who actually did that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I was that person. Uh, you want to move on to Aries? No, it's funny because I feel like Aries. Oh, this Aries became popular only because of Xena. That's my personal <laughs> because you know Aries was such a popular character in that show, and then all of a sudden we were seeing Aries. Now we already had a Hercules, and you know in some ways they're not the same at all. But you know you kind of had a little bit of a Greek demigod, very active in the Marvel universe, a little bit more than all the rest of them. So we got a little bit of a taste of that Hercules, but then later we end up getting Aries. Aries is a very fascinating character. I know a lot of gay men like Aries. <laughs> Um, so, uh, um, he's I, very. I, actually, if you could elaborate on that, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, so he's very. He is this true masculine, bearish-looking character in the comic, and so when we see him, we see this look of bad. Something about this dark character. This you know mysterious. He's been through things. He's a battle person. Like he's all about fight. He doesn't matter. He doesn't care who's team he on or what's going on. He likes to be in a fight, and that's how he. He was depicted. That's how he looked. He was hairy. He had this huge muscles. He was just something that I remember a lot of. <laughs> uh, well, did he get much play in Incredible Hercules? Because I know I mean, it was a big thing uh, for a while there when they did the alternate universe Hercul- Hercules. He was in a relationship with Wolverine and they, they really started to play up Hercules' bisexuality. And I'm wondering if yeah. that was a gateway, if Ares was popping up there, if maybe there was an association there that may have contributed. Yeah, I, I think because he has that played a part that gave people a hint, this whole muscle bear thing about Hercules, but also the same with Ares. The way Ares was also drawn in the comics, you just saw him as this, like, ooh, who's this guy? He could have been of any sexuality. That was never really something that was pushed. I think he had a daughter, but I don't think that was something that was pushed that he was like this super straight man. I think he was just something that had an appeal that everybody caught eyes on. His first appearance in 1966 with Thor, of course, (laughs) you know, but we didn't really get to see a lot of him until like around 2006 and it was interesting because he was considered an anti-hero now in dc he is a full-on god he's a villain of wonder woman and we see him try to destroy the world many times either through him or through his kids this was a different type of version uh, it always felt like he was this worn torn like another version of punisher almost <laughs> because he was just this brooding character we also got to see a little bit more during the whole civil war era where they were really trying to figure out what's going to happen after this and he was invited to join S.H.I.E.L.D. at that moment just because of what was happening after the death quote unquote 
of Captain America. So it was very interesting to see how at that time he was brought in to be the muscle, be the fighter, and then later brought in to be a part of Norman Osborn's team, the Dark Avengers, which was also very interesting too. We didn't really get a lot out Ares throughout the years in Marvel. Guess who he got to fight? Namor. I feel like everybody fights Namor in some form of fashion. They all Namor got hands for everybody. He does because he's also arrogant. But we got to see a little bit more of how Ares were, how he would be as a hero when we saw him with the Avengers and what have you. But I think he was killed by Sentry. And Sentry was another Dark Phoenix-like character. <laughs> when Madden, when they were fighting, he basically split him apart. Okay, well, nice to know you, Ares. <laughs> I've only known Ares through actual Greek history, a little bit on the DC side, and then the God of War, the actual video game. So I didn't even know that Ares had this whole background with Marvel Comics. I kind of struggle with the fact that you're going to have a villain and then all of a sudden, fast forward, he's now an anti-hero. Sometimes I struggle with that. If he's a villain and he is just so consumed with fighting and war and that's what he loves, then maybe just leave him like that. But I don't know. I go back and forth with that sometimes. Yeah. I think he was and- sort of an antagonist for Hercules, so it's not necessarily he was a full-on villain, but the guy who we were supposed to be rooting for he fought and therefore he's the villain by default but I, I don't know that he ever did anything so overtly villainous that he couldn't back come back from him and be an anti-hero that's my ignorance I've not I, I, I wasn't a big Thor reader so I can't say that there wasn't something he did that was like completely heinous but he didn't get the kind of play like say a Loki would get and that didn't stop Loki from being an anti-hero either yeah true that's true he's a god of war so he did linger around for a little bit throughout the comics and I know when Marvel went through this all new all different Marvel he did return so he's around but they're not really use him that much. He's just right now traveling the world with his friends and he wants to go back to these fields. He was at a, I think when he was supposedly dead, he was hanging out in these fields. And I know when they had the Secret Empire storyline, he was a part of the Champions of Europe, which was interesting. And if you remember the Secret Empire, that was when this whole thing about Captain being a Nazi or something like that, which I didn't really read all of that, but apparently along that storyline, he was with Captain Britain and Guillotine, which it's an interesting name and in Excalibur so he's around but they're just not really using a lot of him in anything he seemed to kind of be Brian Michael Bendis's pet character and once he got had ripped in half he was done with him and it doesn't seem like not yeah. too many people have picked it up since then yeah it's interesting what happens when you, they don't know what to do with a character so they'll just linger around and they'll pop up in a comic somewhere like what okay you know it's just like and how do you survive you know it's always that's kind of the answer these days so I don't know I like the Aries in DC I'm sorry Mark the Ares in DC has more of a character arc and situations that I appreciate. As you were saying, I don't know if they know what to do with him. I don't like when Marvel does DC or DC does Marvel. I like him to really be separate and do their <laughs> own thing. And DC, through Wonder Woman, has definitely embraced Ares as the villain and also more so in recent years, Hercules. They've played around with him being a hero, but because he's so important to Wonder Woman's lore and Wonder Woman is such a huge character at DC, it seems like they've leaned more towards allowing Hercules to be a villain of the DC universe. So for Ares and Hercules to be good guys at Marvel, that helps me because each company's doing their own thing with their characters. I kind of like giving them a face turn, I guess you'd call it in wrestling terms. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm in agreement with you, Victor. If I had to choose between my a portrayal of Ares versus Marvel or DC, I would have to go to DC. Especially how he was portrayed in Justice League and uh, Justice League Unlimited. I liked how conniving he was. He reminded me almost a little bit of Mystique in terms of his cunning. Yeah. The art is by Paul Smith. What do we think of the entry and look of the character? Oh, 
it's very classic. This is the God of War. You know, that's kind of look at the whole helmet and everything. This big muscly God. So he kind of had that feel that, you know, that was attractive in so many different ways. To me, he's just the Greek God. That's a Greek God look right there. Almost reminds me of something. What was Wolverine's friend that got the legacy virus? Was it Maverick? Yeah. It almost looks like something Maverick would wear when it's too hot. <laughs> it doesn't scream Greek God to me. But I really mean, with, even with the helmet and everything. No, <laughs> not to me. But, you know, different strokes for different folks. Well, it yeah. looked a lot different when they made him more of an antihero, too. Didn't they go with like long white hair and stuff? Yeah. One of the pictures, he almost looks like the art by Ed McGinnis makes him look like Bane a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. And I was thinking I can see where you can see a little bit of Punisher because of his wherever he was wearing this shirt or his battle gear. It's, his harness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can see it through his harness. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because Ares looks like the quintessential 90s hero we used to see like an image or, you know, those type of comics. Just big for no reason. Big axe. Big male. Comes off like very interesting when you look at the look of Ares. You know, especially as a, you look at the Chaos War, you look at some parts of Incredible Hercules. You just have that look of the 90s heroes. He's even got a Liefeld <laughs> sword with a big lumpy handle. Looks like a vinyl <laughs> toy or something. It yeah. Like a proper yeah. Handle. <laughs> <laughs> there is one cover and I think it's this graphic novel that I do like. It's red and I do like that cover. I like the look of him. There's a sense of loneliness to what it is to be a god of war that you are always fighting. You really don't win. There's always a loss. So I've always liked that because the way they make him look is you almost want to feel a little sorry for him. Yeah, that's a lot. There's a lot of pathos there. I didn't I didn't appreciate that until you mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Aries. <laughs> Sprite, Colossus and Storm take the main stairs. You'll be sorry. Something about Siberiad bothers me. You mean besides the fact that he's trapped us in the mansion? Colossus? Cyclops? Yoo-hoo! Here I am, Sprite! Come on! I found Cyclops! Lead on, Tin Man! He's in here! Only you can save him! Hang on, Cyclops! Hey, what's the big idea? Ow! What's this place made of? Vibranium, my dear Sprite! A metal that can vibrate to block your atomic structure! In other words, I've grown accustomed to your phase! What have you done? Vibranium is also an excellent sonic wave conductor, as you're about to find out! Somebody's playing their stereo too loud! to me. He tricked me into the room. <gasps> that means it was just a hologram of Nightcrawl. Then maybe the Colossus that trapped me wasn't the real Colossus. Yay! I knew Peter Rasputin wouldn't pull such a rotten trick. Maybe a gentler approach will do the trick. I'll phase through. So this is the 108th Sage, Inza, if you're going to use a proper name. And I'm a game uh, designer uh, slash, I guess role-playing uh, game designer, yeah. in the middle of slash halfway through slash almost done with 
co-designing a board game that we've been playing for 20 years and about six years ago now no let's see closer to four years like sorry yeah about six years ago now we were looked at each other and we were like wait a minute this game is getting adjacent to where we could ever actually release it to like the public and let other people buy it so we like okay the next time we're going to do a version change we're going to go ahead and make everything not for the best what's best for us but what's best for a new person playing the game out of a box and so we changed the game in a lot of ways we never thought we would but it's so much better now it's so, so much smoother and plays faster and just it's a great game so the game is called Battle Quest Adventure Awaits is the subtitle once we realized we probably wanted to have a subtitle because Battle Quest is like already at least nine different things including a type of Zelda player special play style I don't know whatever anyway the point is that it's a cooperative board game it's role playing without a game master really is what it is a cooperative story based tactical adventure is kind of like the little tag like we have on our board we put up at Dragon Con when we demo it and so 2019 is going to be our fifth year demoing our game this game and that first year we didn't really know what to expect and we were blown away especially with the kids we play with 20 to 40 year olds you know we're not playing with kids but all of a sudden that first year there were kids like teaching it to their parents like halfway through the first game like no 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 mom you're doing it wrong here's how the game works and they were 100% right one of the things we've done with this game is play it for 20 years so we've refined the rules and refined the rules and got it really stupid complex and then spent the next however many years kind of refining it from that and taking out all the complex stuff and making it super simple and super cool and it's just a lot of fun since you haven't done podcasting before do you want to introduce yourself in terms of where you're coming from as a fan good idea i got into podcasts back in 2012 i think when i was like oh i need some left-wing political news because i can't get that through the regular news sources oh chris hayes he's an awesome person i'm gonna see if chris hayes up as a podcast and that led me to this thing citizen radio which then led me to a couple of other podcasts and i eventually started branching into tv podcasts when i saw the fringe podcast by golden spiral media up on one of the vote for podcast awards kind of thing i love fringe i'll check that out and that led me to the whole world of tv podcasts and then the flash podcast had shag on and that's how i found out that they were actually good comic book podcasts because i'd actually looked into them when i first started getting into podcasts but they were all about what was current i didn't care about what was current i wasn't buying comics by the issue anymore and hadn't for years and so all of a sudden i find these people talking about who's who sold already there and then the fire and water network of course started me spiraling between all these different other networks like two true freaks and of course fortress of bailey Tude and all that stuff you led me to warrior for peace the wonder woman podcast which i really enjoy so many podcasts i've listened to in the past whatever like seven years now i'm always always subscribed to more podcasts than i could possibly listen to as far as comic books go started reading comics when i was a wee child and my first comic book i ever bought with my own money was power pack number six then a little bit after that when they crossed over with the x-men i started collecting x-men too and my brother had already been collecting avengers and fantastic four so like those were our four main books because we would of course read each other's books growing up so of course i was a big marvel kid especially when i went to my cousin's house and tried to read her superman comics and they were just so juvenile it felt like come to find out after i'd grown up and i'd actually started reading those superman comics again and loving them that oh wait i was reading marvel comics in the 80s but she had marvel comics from like the early 70s because somebody had given it to her parents and like she just had a whole bunch of comics that she wasn't getting current comics so i wasn't reading current superman and i was like oh superman's super lame when i was a kid i was just reading like the late 60s early 70s stuff so i was just like 100 marvel until my mom found out that mary jane watson had posed for playboy and other scandalous things and made us sell all of our comics although i was able to convince her to let me keep power pack we went for years like the wilderness years i think of it without being able to read comics until i could all of a sudden start driving and then i could start buying comics again so i was like pretty much just back into comics from that moment although as i was getting back into them my friend was getting into them and we were diving into the back issue bins and we mainly focused on dc actually specifically the pre-vertigo stuff oh my goodness doom patrol and shade the changing man i was the collector of doom patrol my friend collected shade and we of course read each other's comics invisibles and sandman and all that stuff really helped 
helped reinvigorate my interest in comics as a teenager. And I started branching out into things like Comics Greatest World and the Ultraverse when they were ground zero. You don't have to jump into the crazy continuity because I had really not gone back to Marvel since I had gotten back in comics because all those years of continuity that I had missed were just like, what? I don't know. And then as I got into my college years, I had to stop buying comics for a while being poor. But when I got back in, I started actually dabbling both DC and Marvel, but pure, pretty much purely through the back issues. I didn't buy current comics until the mid-2000s again. I now split my time between reading trade paperbacks and reading digital comics because yay tablets. I first got I got my first kept tablet in 2014, I want to say, and I've been reading digital comics pretty heavily ever since. There was a house fire at our previous residence back in 2011, and that was like, okay, can't afford to buy comics anymore. I'm going to need to spend all my money on recovering from this house fire for the foreseeable future. And so that was pretty much the last time I regularly bought issues off a of stand. Although I did go in belatedly several weeks late and get Action Comics 1000 and picked up like the occasional other issue. Almost entirely I've been buying trade paperbacks. Some from in-stock trades, a lot of them from Ollie's started having stupid sales on some trade paperbacks. And others were just like reasonably priced, but some of them were just like stupidly low prices. So I would go there every once in a while and spend way too much money on new new trade paperbacks. Things like that. It's too bad you're not on a fire and water podcast. That would have been a pretty great blurb for their sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> we can just go to the bays and start with Ariel. That's an excellent place to start. Paul Smith Art. I love Paul Smith. What do you think about her representation here? From all my comic reading, I never really saw her in this phase. By comic reading, I mean as a kid, like when I actually knew her, she was always Shadowcat to me. And she was like in the dark blue, light blue costume that I just loved. And it was one of my early favorite characters that I came across. And then once I got a little bit older, one of my earliest, if not my earliest crushes, just such a cutie, yay kitty pride. As I got a little more advanced and widespread in my reading, I was like, oh wait, she wasn't always called Shadowcat. Ariel? Or like Sprite? I didn't even know about Like I have not read those comics yet. I'm almost to where the X-Men starts up again in my semi-complete Marvel read-through, but I have not gotten there yet. And then, of course, it's going to be like 35 issues or so until she appears. I'm looking forward to it. This costume, like I say, is not one I'm familiar with from reading her adventures, but it's super cute. The way it's kind of like a little bit baggy, but a little bit tight in like in different places is, it, I really like it. I like the high boots. One thing that I think maybe got lost with this character over the years, after the Shadowcat period, is they did such a great job of allowing her to have to figure out her identity. All those different code names she went through, a lot of different costumes, many of them deeply embarrassing costumes, which is exactly the sort of thing you would go through in your adolescence. We all go through that, where you're trying on different personas, trying to figure out who you are by trying different things. And I thought they did such a great job of representing that. But because from basically the mid-80s onwards, she was sort of crystallized as to who she was. I think that's why you needed to have Jubilees and Gen X kids down the line, because once she knew who she was, the people who came in reading her after the fact didn't get to have that experience with her of her figuring out who she was through these different costumes and identities. That makes sense. Speaking about the different costumes and identities, that kind of reminds me. Don't know if we were even covering him at all, but Hank Pym was one of my earliest favorite Avengers because of how many different personalities slash code names slash power sets he's had over the years. I don't know. I always appreciated those characters who like go through lots of different phases. Basically, the Power Pack crossover with Uncanny X-Men was what introduced me to her. I think the first time he started encountering him is through the Morlock situation where Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler going through the sewer. The kids are like sneaking around through the sewer or something. I don't remember exactly how it is, but they like come across them. At least that's my memory of the situation. It has been a minute since I've read those comics. Then whenever they had the crossover right out during that storyline of like actually appearing in X-Men and stuff, I started collecting it from that issue and going forward until my mom's Amy saw all my comics. Uh, the only other thing I can think of really is I think it's after this era, but Lockheed. I love Lockheed and her relationship with Lockheed and just such a cute little dragon. I never read the comics or at least in the first run I didn't read the comics while she was Ariel I don't think she was in this 
particular costume or by that particular name for very long. I was around before the Shadow Cat days, and yeah, Kitty Pride was definitely my first comic book girlfriend for sure. She's one of the reasons why I ended up picking up Uncanny X Men, at least one of the two reasons why I picked up Kitty Pride and Wolverine. And for me, she'll always be Shadow Cat, but I don't know if anybody's ever drawn her as well as Paul Smith drew her. She's so beautiful, she's so graceful, but she also has that innocence. She's for me perfectly represented by Paul Smith, and so it makes me happy to see this drawing, even though, again, this is not a costume or a version of the character that I'm terribly familiar with. Indeed. I've always been one of those words more than art kind of people when it comes to comics. Like, sometimes people will wax reposodic about, like, how they can easily tell that this was Kurt Schaffenberg or, like, Will Wayne Boring or various things like that when, like, talking about their versions of Superman. And I'm like, nope. I mean, it looks like Superman. I can tell the different artists drew very different ones, but the ones that are vaguely similar, I would not be able to tell that they were different artists. I'm just not, that's not the way my brain works, really. So, I don't remember who drew the iconic versions of Shadow Cat that I'm familiar with, but this version is certainly really nice looking here in the static photo for uh, Hotmu. Of all of the Kitty Pride comics that I've read, she has looked cute under multiple different artists, I guess is a good way of saying it. And you mentioned too, again, it, and this will be an ongoing theme with Ohatmu, is the static nature. But I think the great job is done here by Smith of showing the personality, the, the little wave, the kind of being back on the one hill while the, you know, the, the hand behind her back. You get a real sense of her personality, even though she's not necessarily doing anything particularly overt. All those little tells are there to let you know what kind of person this is just based on this single image. Totally. It really does have more personality than entry that'll come later where we just talked about Darkstar, where she's just kind of standing there. Like you say, she's projecting personality through her hand gestures and things. But as far as pictures go, the one at the bottom is a little bit like, wait, why do they pick that one picture? It's pretty obvious she's just in her underwear and you can't even see what she's wearing on top because she's facing through a wall. 15-year-old girl at that point, 14-year-old girl in her underwear, whatever. It's definitely an unfortunate and very odd choice. I I wish they hadn't gone that way. The danger has passed. You are safe now. Who are you? What are you? I have traveled across dimensions of space to find you. My name is Archon, ruler of Polemicus. My planet is dying. You, mistress of the elements, can save us. You created this chaos. It is but a hint of the misery that afflicts my planet. With every second, Polemicus comes closer to extinction. How could you endanger all of these people just to get to me? That is barbarous. My people depend on me. I must be prepared to do anything to save them. Hi, my name is Carolyn Love. I'm a huge comic book fan, both Marvel and DC, and I'm just a nerd working hard to become a voice actor. We can move on to Archon. Okay. What is your familiarity with this fellow? Have you read him in any comics in the past? Mostly in the, the weird world arc, like the battle world and the weird world arc. So uh, the, the recent Secret Wars, relatively recent Secret Wars crossover then? Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about him there. Archon is like Archon the Magnificent. He comes from this world, I can I never know if I pronounce this right, called Polymachus, that glorifies warfare. It's almost like, imagine the Amazon world where everyone's a warrior and... They do have their own sciences. And in the, and outside of this world, you can see these light rings that surround it. And those rings are essential to Polymachus. For some reason, scientists there believe, that, well, believe, they determined that atomic explosions somehow kind of rekindle the power rings. For about a good year, if there's at least one explosion on Earth. 
So Archon, being the most celebrated warrior of their world, he had gotten into contact with Scarlet Witch, and he tricked her into saying a spell that could transport him to Earth, where he kidnapped Scarlet Witch because, well, he fell in love with her. He's like, I want to marry you. And she's like, no, thank you. But And he also kidnapped a couple of scientists, too, and then they went back to his world, Polymachus where they were working on on this atomic device thing that right before he could activate it, Scarlet Witch managed to get the Avengers to come to Polymachus and, well, they did duke it out for a little while, but Iron Man and Thor, they figured out how to make like an artificial device that would simulate atomic activity, that would keep their power rings good and running. And I do, well, this is one part that I do like about Archon. Like, when there is a conflict and a conflict is clearly solved, he doesn't just, like, insist that he should be the winner. He always says, okay, the conflict is gone, everything is solved, you guys can go home, I can go home. So that's what he does. In real world, we all know, like, a bunch of weird worlds got kind of meshed into one really big weird world, and he just wants to find his home. He has no idea what's going on. All he, the only goal that he has in mind is home. I gotta find my home. I gotta go home. So he just keeps searching and searching. He even comes across these people from a plane crash and he does save them, but he's still just agonizing over finding his home world, Polymachus. And he even reaches the end of the real world where it's like his edge and he is just completely given up and he actually falls from the edge and is attacked by another character called uh, Morgan Le Fay where he is saved by something I cannot recall, but but um, at right before he was saved by the other character, he got a glimpse of the upside down of Werewolf, and he saw his home world, and he just got so happy. Like, that's the only thing that mattered to him. Like, I felt really bad for him in the room we have so many characters in comics that are so driven they have this thirst for justice or this quest revenge it's all going to be this epic scale and it sounds like he's for the most part he's a very capable individual but just wants to live his life you know and all this stuff just yeah, keeps he, going his he way he loves his home he loves his world he loves his planet he just wants to help it like at one point the artificial device it didn't really seem like it was working that well for him so he wanted to make it better like that he didn't end up screwing it over and causing a whole other mess. And stuff. Well, that's just another story later, but most of his end goals are for his home and his people. I think that's kind of a little bit noble in some ways or another. And uh, what do you think of the uh, entry art by Bob Budiansky? <laughs> uh, it kind of looks like a, like a He-Man or Conan-era type of design. <laughs> like, he got this really buff guy with only basically like a loincloth, maybe a cool hat and some shoes and some a shield and some weaponry at his side but <laughs> it's a little bit laughable pretty sure I'd play with that action figure back in the day yeah so anything else on Archon? he does have these kind of cool lightning bolt-ish weapons the golden ones they have the ability to transport him to other worlds the red ones well they cause like a big explosion but the black ones cause like an even like big bigger explosion and they're solid right up until the point they hit 
the target. And it just kind of melds into this energy glass. And I think that's kind of cool. It's always fun when you have something clearly coded like that. I think that's something that kids especially respond to. Is like, oh, yeah, I know what these ones do versus yeah. what this one does. I don't want to forget, there's this one point I cannot remember if it's a lightning fly, but there is this Hollywood movie going on. It was actually starring the character of Archon, and the character Wonder Man got it. And it was it just been like such a stupid storyline where Archon just basically went over to Earth in Hollywood and he just smacked Wonder Man around saying, hey, yeah. Very random. Mm-hmm. Probably one of those things where somebody had the idea and maybe didn't know quite how to execute it. Just like, okay, well. Yeah, they had, they had stuff in there, but they just didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah, aside from the lightning bolts, I think that hat is probably the most distinctive thing. If, if I did have that action figure, I'm pretty sure the flappy thing would have broken off on me. Mm-hmm. It was very sharp. The official listeners of the Marvel Handbook Podcast are 20th Century Geek Podcast, The 108 Sage, Adriano, Always Second, Andre 79 Oliveira, Dr. And, Between the Pages, Brian Gooney, Brian Olvey, Brian Burnt, Caroline Wells, Chris at Bad Books for Beginners, Chris Dunford, Christopher Bush, Collected Edition, Daniel French, Fishbone as Sound Design, who tweeted a hot dog whip gif, Debosh, Delvin, Derek William Crab of Fanhill's Podcast, and history of comics on film, Doc Strange, Dr. G, Nerdologist, Dear Ashton, who tweeted a thank you, Cat Gif, Ed Moore, Eric Borden, Fiendish Fitz, FSD Records, Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes, Random Geeky Stuff, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jax Webb, Jeffrey Brown, Jennifer DeRoss, Carl Ottersberg, who tweeted humble thanks, Keith G. Baker, Kenny Crowley Jr., Law Dog, RPG Historian, Marvel Universe Online, Max Traver, Mike It Send Aliens to Me, who wrote I feel like there is a does backlash nay nay, joking here somewhere, anyway, really excited to hear this. Keep up the great work. Luke J. Kennedy of Earth Destruction Directive added, I can only imagine Blizzard, Boomerang, Beetle, etc. taunting him mercilessly with that. Pound signed team. Odell Abner Dracula, who wrote Blacklash's whip looks like a fine German rapidograph. Relatively geeky. Randy Caldwell, Resurrections, and Adam Warlick and Thonos podcast. Richard G. Ryan Daly, Sean Coleman, Sean Marek who wrote hell yeah, can't wait to hear this, Siskoid, Stimpid 5000, Talk Nerdy to Me, Hobby Doby Shop, and Wonder Woman, Warrior for Peace podcast. All characters and concepts appearing in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe and the distinct likenesses thereof are the trademark and copyright of Marvel Entertainment, LLC, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. This has been a not-for-profit fan production from Rolled Spine Podcasts, with any copyrighted materials presented herein presumed covered under fair use, with no infringement intended.